So there's this passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, where Paul says, Christ is all and in all. And I, and I read that and I kind of go, what? Really? What does that mean? And I guess simply put, it just means that Jesus is everything. Actually, I think the original is more simply put, right? Christ is all. And, and, and if it really means something, and it's not just some like, because honestly, it sounds kind of like a cheesy, cliche, kind of a trite statement, right? Maybe it just means, you know, Jesus is the answer, or it's all about Jesus. But I'm thinking if Paul wrote it, it must mean something. And if it means something, then I would like to know what does it mean? What does it mean that Christ is all and in all. And as I started thinking about that, the more and more I started thinking about it, the more and more I started thinking, if it really does have meaning, then it gets to be pretty heavy, man. You know what I'm saying? And then I wonder how long can I think about it before the weight of it starts to crush me? I start to feel the weight of it. Now, Paul uses the term all over 20 times in the book of Colossians. And Colossians is only four chapters long. And so 20 times in actually like three and a half short chapters, that's a lot of alls. In fact, I took the time just to go ahead and stack them next to each other so that you can kind of see how redundant and repetitive they are. For instance, Paul says, we can be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding and strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance to teach everyone with all wisdom that we may reach all the riches of the fullness of assurance and understanding being forgiven of all our trespasses. We may now teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, being fully assured in all of the will of God. That's a lot of alls, isn't it? But I'll be honest with you, that wasn't 20. That was just 10. And that's just the 10 that have to do with us. This is all that we have in Christ because Christ is all. And then when Paul talks about Christ, he says this. He's the firstborn over all creation. By him, all things are created. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, all things are reconciled to God. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And, and he is the head of all rule and authority because Christ, there's this verse, is all and in all. Doesn't that make you just want to go, woo -hoo? it's awesome. And those are all, no, no pun intended, pretty, pretty audacious statements, don't you think? I mean, I wonder how you know, we live in, in a post-Christian, post-modern world. How would the post-modern respond when we tell them that Christ is giving us all wisdom to a post-modern who doesn't even believe that there is such a thing as truth? Or when the postmodern believes that there's no absolute, how would they respond when we say Jesus absolutely is holding all things together and he created all things for himself because he is all? That sounds pretty absolute to me. So I chose this book as our first book because it's all about Jesus and, and, and I want to get us under the weight of what it means that Jesus is all and, and in all. Now, our, our mission statement at Missio Dei is Christ, community, and culture. So I thought, what better way to start our first series by just spending a lot of time on Christ? But I'm pleased to tell you that as I started researching and studying this book and kind of outlining it and writing several messages, I began to realize that we could actually outline the book, Christ, community, oh, wait for it, and culture. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I, I'll give you some examples. Um, the, uh, most scholars will outline it like this, orthodoxy, heterodoxy, and orthopraxy, which means <laughs> orthodoxy means right thinking. Paul wants us to think rightly about who Christ is, and so that's why this book is all about Christ. Heterodoxy is the opposite of right thinking, you know, like the opposite sex. It's the opposite of right thinking, so it's thinking wrong about Jesus. And so Paul wants the church, the community of saints, to protect the truth, and not let wrong thinking come into the church. So the church's job is to protect or to be the pillar of the truth, if you will. And then orthopraxy means right 
actions. And so Paul's saying, this is how the church acts in a world that is hostile to the truth of who Jesus is. Does that make sense? So we really could say Christ, community, the church, and culture. How do we live in a culture that doesn't believe in absolutes, doesn't believe in truth? So isn't this exciting? We're going to walk through it. In fact, the passage that we're going to look at today in Paul's way, when he opens a letter, he always sort of kind of gives us the outline of the whole letter in his greeting. And so let's just jump right in and look at his greeting. It's in Colossians chapter one, and it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and to the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our father. So Paul's telling you who wrote it and who they wrote it to, and why they're writing it, to give you grace and peace. Then he says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And I found this section amazing. You might have noticed that I highlighted three words. Anyone see those words that I highlighted? Good, faith, hope, and love. Now, you may know if you grew up in the church, this is a Pauline way of saying things. He, he likes to use these terms, uh, these three virtues. I think Paul sees these three virtues as being the mark of a true believer, someone who believes or has faith in Christ. That person who has faith in Christ will then begin to have love for the community of saints. And then that person will also have hope but not just any hope, but a correctly laid hope, which is a hope laid in heaven. And so Paul uses these things, faith, hope, and love, as he prays for the Colossians. Hey, can I be honest with you? Am I allowed to do that? I grew up in the church, and whenever I hear the words faith, hope, and love, I always just want to go, it kind of just makes me sick because it's so girly. You know what I'm saying? Are you with me? Like, 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 it's like, Paul says this thing like, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And I just think of girly, mamby-pamby, hippie kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? You know, you're not with me? Like, 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 raise your hand if you're with me. Okay, good. It's just all the men in the room. Um, you know, people have coffee cups, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And, or these little plaques on your wall, or these little cheesy Christian arts with faith, hope, and love, maybe in cursive or something like that. Raise your hand if you've got faith, hope, and love plaque on your wall in cursive. Okay, I knew it. And it just makes me feel like this sounds like this pie in the sky kind of a religion where we all love each other and we all love Jesus. And one of these days we're going to be in heaven where we get to love each other on the rainbows and the clouds, right? And that can't be any further from what Paul is saying here. Because Paul uses this faith, hope, and love thing as a bridge to get us to how we get this faith, hope, and love. How do we get to a place where we have faith in Christ, love for one another, and hope stored up in heaven? We get to it through the gospel. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, comma, the gospel. And here's what I know about the gospel. Paul says the gospel is the power of God. So you see, it's the exact opposite of this mamby-pamby, hippie kind of love. It takes the power of God to get you to have faith in Christ. And I'm gonna unpack that tonight because we in this room, even though you may be saved or may be a Christian most of your life, it still takes the power of God to move us to walk in faith in Christ because we all too often wanna put our faith in ourselves. It takes the power of God to get us to love one another. Can I get an amen? Because I've grown up in the church my whole life, and I don't like most church people. You know what I'm saying? I don't like most people, period, because I love myself. And in order for me to love others, I've got to stop loving myself chiefly. I've got to center on them instead of centering on me. And the only way that's going to happen is if the power of God comes on me. And even greater than that is the hope thing. See, Paul says they have hope laid up in heaven, and it's not just the kind of hope that you hear talked about here today, right? In in America, we all need hope, or people are without hope, and we need to give them some hope. Paul says, no, it's a very specific kind of hope. It's a hope that's somewhere else in another world. It's a hope that's laid up, Paul says, and that word means it's actually placed up in where? Heaven. It's laid up in heaven. So someone who has their hope laid up in heaven means that they aren't laying their hope up 
in the earth. They're not laying their hope up on material things or their careers or, or even, I better be careful because we live in suburbia, but even our children, which I all too often want to do. So Paul says, this hope is laid up in heaven. And, and can I just tell you that someone who has their hope laid up in heaven spends their life differently on this earth if they have no hope on this earth. Can I get a, a what, what? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, those guys, and I, I don't know how many there are, and girls, but, but, you know, but you've seen them, right? You've read books about them. They're the kinds that kind of spend their life like a meteorite because they, they're not living for here. They're living for a hope that's laid up in heaven. And in order for you and I to have that kind of hope, it's gonna take the power of God to make that happen. So it's not mamby-pamby, hippie, love on the rainbows. This is a powerful force that makes us have faith in Christ and not ourselves, love people who don't love us back, and place our hope in heaven and not on earth. And can I just say that that also outlines the Christ community and culture? Were you, were you kind of following that? If we have faith in Christ, we love the community that we have right now. And because our hope is laid up in heaven, we're living differently in this culture. We're engaging and influencing this culture. And that's not a stretch at all because you'll see that through the whole book of Colossians. It's pretty amazing. Now, what I want to do tonight is I just want to camp out on those last two words on the screen, the gospel. And I want, to, I want to define the gospel. You may not know this, but the gospel has been a hotbed of um, controversy over the past, probably a long, longer than I realize, but definitely over the past 10 years. It's being redefined and attacked, and, and some writers have tried to redefine it for us, and they've violated it. And there's other writers who are championing it and trying to explain it more clearly so that we don't miss the power and the truth of the gospel. Like, for instance, one pastor that I used, to, I used to go to his church in Dallas, his name's Matt Chandler, he just wrote a book called The Explicit Gospel. And if you haven't read it, I, I recommend it. It's a good book. Because I resonate with him in the introduction, he talks about why he re- wrote the book. Because he was a church planter, and he planted this church, and over the first eight to ten years, he was hearing all these people get saved and get baptized and come to Christ, and their testimonies, he said, all sounded exactly the same. And they sounded like this. Well, I grew up in the church, I went to Iwana, I got saved at camp, but you know, I, I never really heard the gospel. And then, and then I came here and I heard the gospel and then I realized I wasn't really saved. And he said, I got so sick of hearing that because A, my kids are growing up in the church and I don't want them to have that experience. And B, I didn't really believe them. Really, if you went to church your whole life and Iwana and youth camp, how could you not hear the gospel? Maybe they just didn't have ears to hear, he thought. So he did some research and he learned that, yeah, there were some of them who just didn't have ears to ear. But he said, by and large, most of them really hadn't heard the gospel. So what were, were the pastors preaching? And he says they were preaching an assumed gospel, which is the pastors just assumed everyone understood the gospel. So let's move on past the gospel and talk about deeper things like how you need to be better and you need to try harder and you need to do gooder. And what that did to people is it made them religious and not following the gospel. And so there's a big difference between religion and even people who grow up in Christianity may have thought they heard the gospel, but really what they were hearing was religion. And so what I want to do tonight is define the gospel explicitly like that pastor wants us to do so that we don't start to create more of this legalistic or um, religious faith in Christ. What I thought would be interesting is this. What if we sat around a table and we ask ourselves, what is the gospel? Um, Answer the question together. Before I do that, I want to say this. Philip Arthur, a a, a scholar, said um, that Paul was a man of one thing. He he, he only, he was one of those one-man guys, solidarity. And his one thing was the gospel. And if you read the the New Testament, Paul's always saying, I'm a minister of the gospel. I exist for the gospel. I preach the gospel. I want to clarify the gospel. And and this author says, the church today would be really good if we just had an inkling, just a little bit of Paul's clarity and intensity of focus. And and I want Missio Dei to be a church that's about one thing, the gospel. So our, our, our teaching is going to be about the gospel. Our singing is going to be about the gospel. Our activities are going to be about the gospel. And so if that's the case, we have to define it, right? 
because I, I, I'm willing to gamble that even in your circle, you might come up with some interesting answers. So let's take three minutes and define what is the gospel. Awesome answers. Anyone else? Got a bad answer? No, okay, cool. We got some good ones then. And, and, that's, and that's clear. I always thought the gospel was pretty clear. It's amazing how easily it gets twisted and um, convoluted. You know what I mean? Like we, we turn it into things it's not. One thing I, I wanted to tell you about the gospel is it's all, it is the power of God, but it also has some sort of mystery or, or magic to it, if you will, that Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, actually said that angels long to look into it. So, so from the beginning of time, Paul says, the gospel has been preached. The gospel has been proclaimed through prophets and through the Holy Spirit. And angels have longed to look into the things of this thing called the gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, if we go to the next few verses, Paul gives us some context clues. Now, I don't want to actually define it based on his context clues alone. We will look at some other verses where Paul defines it. But you see, because Paul is a person of one thing, he doesn't always have to define it. But when he talks about it, you can tell he's talking about the same thing he always talks about when he uses the word, the gospel. And so let's look at his context clues. In the next verse, he says, you know, I thank God for your faith in Christ, your love for um, the saints, your hope laid up in heaven. And of this, you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. So like I said, there's a lot of context clues in this passage. First of all, I've kind of highlighted them to make it easy. Um, first of all, it's something that comes. So it's personified as a person that comes to us. And then if we go backwards from there, we say it's something that you hear, right? You have to hear it. And it's also something that you understand. So maybe in your heart and in your head, you, 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 you grasp it, you get it, you, you receive it, you understand it. And then once it comes inside of you and you receive it, it begins to bear fruit and increase within you. But not only that, but it goes outside of you and bears fruit and increases, Paul says, in the whole world. So the way I kind of see it is like, if you will, because I watch too many movies, like you're in this dark place and you hear this thing that comes to you kind of like light, a bright light, and it comes inside of you and you grasp it and then it begins to increase and bear fruit and grow inside of you and then you become changed and then shoots out of your fingers and out of your eyes and out of your ears and out of your toes and you begin to influence and change the whole world, bearing fruit and increasing. And Paul says, this thing's going global. It's changing the world. Pretty cool. So what is the gospel? Well, it's something that you hear and understand, and it's something that has power to change you and to change the world. The Greek word for the word gospel is the word, and I'm going to get heavy on you for just a few minutes, is the word euangelion, which is actually a conjunction of two Greek words. The first Greek word is the word angelos, which is where we get the word angel. And so an angel is basically a herald or a messenger. God sends the messenger to give Mary a message, to give Joseph a message, to give us a message. And so an angelos is the same thing as a messenger. So it's a message, or we could say it's news, that is, and the other conjunction is the, is the word en in Greek, which means joy. So it's, a, it's news that brings about joy or we would say it's good news. I love the way Timothy Keller says it in one of his books. He says, it's news that brings about great joy of such a kind that changes your status of life. It's news that's so good. It's not happy news. It's not just good news. It's news that produces a deep-rooted joy. So much joy that would change the status of your life. Let me, let me give some examples the word gospel is not always been used strictly for religious folks. Like right now, if I went to Walmart and I shouted out, the gospel, everyone would know I'm talking about Jesus or the church or something like that. But the word gospel has been used even before Christ in the BCs, like 500 BC. We actually have an inscription that, here that says, in the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And this was about his birth and his coronation as king and so this gospel means, hey, good news, we have a new king, and it's Caesar. Um, and as you might know, the Caesars were quite a big deal, right? So the good news of this new king 
named Caesar. Another example would be um, before the, you know, in ancient days, before people had texting machines in their pocket, and before we had internet or, um, or, or telephones or even TV with broadcast news, or even the telegraph, or even the printing press, the only way that news would be delivered to people was through a messenger, also called a evangelist. Because of the word euangelion, the, the messenger of good news would be an evangelist, not strictly religious term, bringing in the good news. And so, for instance, if there was a battle that was won, that messenger might get on a horse and fly to the next nearby town, or maybe he would run. You may be familiar with the story of the dude, I'm not going to try to pronounce his name, who, who ran from Marathon all the way to Athens in order to tell them, we have won the battle. And so the good, joyful news of this messenger would be, hello, everyone, good news, we have won the battle. The battle is won. The evil empire is destroyed. You no longer have to live in fear of slavery or destruction. You can come outside. Let's have a party. Your life has changed. We have fought for you, and we have won, and your world is different. It's a safe place. It's good news. And people would rush out and do things, you know. Woo! No longer is Persia threatening us. No longer do I have to fear that my wife and my children are going to be taken from me. No longer am I in slavery to this dark, evil empire. This is good news. So can I tell you that the gospel is, first of all, it's news of an event that happened in space-time history that changes your world in a good way. And that's why it's good news. If the gospel is something that happened in the past, it's not about what you need to do. It's about what he has already done. Can I get an amen? The gospel is not, you need to do this and you need to stop doing that. The gospel is, he did this and that's good news. I love the way Keller, I have to quote Keller. He's awesome. You should read this book too, The King's Cross. He says, the essence of every other religion is advice. Christianity is essentially news. Other religions say, this is what you have to do in order to connect to God forever. This is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. But the gospel says, this is what has been done in history. This is how Jesus lived and died to earn the way to God for who? It's good news, guys. You, yeah, and me. Christianity is completely different. It's joyful news. So the gospel is news about an event that happened, that because it happened, it will change your life and you didn't do anything but sit at home and wait for the messenger to come bring it. Another thing I want to tell you about the gospel is that it has the power to change you. And this is where I think so many maybe pastors and teachers in the past have twisted it because we, we go from this, good news, the evil one has been killed and your life is new. Now, you need to stop doing this and you need to stop doing that and you need to do this and you need to pray more, a lot more, and you need to give your money to the church. If someone told me that, I'd be like, well, why? Well, because I just told you good news. Well, doesn't sound like good news to me. <laughs> Sounds like I gotta change a bunch of stuff that I don't wanna change. If it's good news, why do I gotta change? Because that's not good news, is it? That sounds to me like behavioral modification or, or fear-controlling religion. That doesn't sound like something that produces joy in me and changes my life. So I've heard a lot of preachers who just kind of play on this one string on their fiddle, right? You need to do better. You need to try harder. You need to be gooder. You need to pray a lot more. You need to have a quiet time at 6 a.m. with a journal and a cup of coffee, right? <laughs> and, and, and those things are not good news. That's not the gospel, and that's not even biblical. I want to show you what I mean. First of all, let me tell you what the, what the gospel is. Here's Paul's, I think, clearest definition in Scripture. It's news, and here's the news. Paul says of the gospel, I delivered to you as of, what's that word? First importance. And so not second importance, not third importance, but first importance. Paul says the first importance is this. Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you can have full life and you can live forever. 
And all you have to do is believe that. And it's the free gift of God. That's good news. That's first importance. And sometimes I think what we do is we make it second or third importance. And first importance is all that one strength thing that you need to do better and you need to try harder. But the first importance is the gospel. And I promise you, if you walk with me, you'll begin to see, uh-huh, I do see how I don't make it first importance. I make the other things first importance. I, I love the way uh, Timothy Keller says it here. And I'm, I'm just going to read this quote for you. And I'll put the end of it there because I couldn't fit it all there. It's about four pages long. Just bear with me. <laughs> Keller says this, how do you feel when you're given good advice on how to live? Someone says, here's the love you ought to have, or here's the integrity you ought to have. And, and maybe they illustrate high moral standards by telling a story of some great hero. But when you hear it, how does it make you feel? Inspired, right? Sure. But do you feel the way the listeners who heard those heralds felt when the victory was announced and their life was changed? Do you feel your burdens falling off? Do you feel as if something great has been done for you and you're not a slave anymore? Of course you don't. It weighs you down. This is how I have to live. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that God connects to you, not on the basis of what you've done or haven't done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done in history for you. And that makes it absolutely different from every other religion or philosophy. It's not about what you do or haven't done. It's about what he has already done because it's history, it's news. But I hear your thoughts. Not like Jesus hears your thoughts, but I, I think I hear your thoughts and, and your thoughts may sound something like this. Well, well, what about the rules? What about all those passages in scripture that do say we need to be better? What about those 10 commandments? Because it almost sounds, Mike, like you're preaching, and watch me, Easy believism or cheap grace. Have you ever heard that before? Raise your hand. Let me tell you what easy believism is. Easy believism is something that's easy to believe. You tell me if it's easy to believe that Jesus paid for your sins and you don't get to do anything to earn it. Is that easy to believe? It's not for me because I sure want to earn it and prove that I deserve it. Cheap grace. You tell me if it's cheap, if God gave his only son to die on the cross for your sins, is that cheap? No, it's not. Well, what about those rules? Especially if you're a type A person, you like the rules, right? Amen. Because if you have rules, you have a checklist and you can say, I did do my quiet time this morning and I didn't listen to the rock and roll radio station. I listened to the Joy FM one and, and I did, you know, give this week at church. Immediately when you start checking off the rules, what happens? The pastor is up there playing on his fiddle. You need to do better. You need to try harder. And then all of us other types, I guess they're B types. I don't know. I don't want to be called a B type. <laughs> but all the other types, the B types are sitting there saying, yeah, I need to do better. Yeah, I need to try harder. Yeah, I need to give more. And all the A types are like, yeah, you do. Because I gave. <laughs> because I listened to 91 point. What is it, one? I listened to that. And so you see it, it's, it's, it's twisted and it's wrong and it's not the gospel. I love this verse right here, and, and some of you need to hear it. I'm willing to bet a million dollars that there's someone in this room who's struggling with deep, dark sin in your life. I may be wrong, but I'm not. There, there are people in this room struggling. Listen to what Paul says. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You got sin? There's no condemnation for that sin. You're not condemned. You're not weighed down. You're not, you're not, you're not put in place of shame and guilt. We sang a song earlier today. I loved what you, you, you picked that song. Dan, it was perfect. We, we, we can't let that shame, it's a lie. We have no shame. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, but that's just for the sins that I did before I got saved. No, Jesus died on the cross before you were ever born. So all of your sins that he died for were future sins. Your sins right now, your sins tomorrow, your sins the next day. There's no condemnation. You're scot-free. Because the gospel says Jesus paid it all. And you're clean, even though you know you're not. 
but what about the rules? You still sound like you're preaching that, that whole easy believism. Listen to what he, he goes on. He says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. Hmm. Can I get an amen? I need someone kind of pacing the back floor saying, yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's right. Mm, yeah. Okay, do we have any people that can do that for me? Because I don't want some energy. All right. The law of the spirit of life has set you free. Yes, sir. In Christ Jesus. Amen. For the law of sin, from the law of sin and death. So Paul is, man, I wish we all could understand this more. Paul always puts this in this, he, he, he describes it the same way every time. There's two camps. There's two dominions. There's two kingdoms. There's two laws. There's the law of spirit and, and, and life. And there's the law of sin and death. It's like a gravity law, right? It's a kingdom. It's a dominion. And Paul says, you're not condemned because Jesus died for your sins. And no longer are you in this camp, this dominion, this law, under this law of sin and death. You're under this new law of spirit and life. No longer is the law of sin and death pushing you down to sin and therefore the wages of that sin is to die. Now, it doesn't matter. You're not in that camp anymore. You're not under that law anymore. That gravity has no weight on you. You're here now. You're in the law of spirit and life. You sin, spirit convicts you of that. You still have life. He goes on to say it like this. For God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could never do. The law says, don't lie. I lie. I just did. The law says, don't commit murder. And Jesus, Jesus ups it and says, uh, you, you committed murder if you're angry. And I was angry yesterday about 4.30. We're, we're all. We can't not sin. And so Paul says, God, the Father, has done away, has done what the law has weakened by the flesh could not do. By what? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, which means he came as a human being. He looked like a sinful human being, but he wasn't sinful. He was a flesh being, and he came for sin. He came for the purpose of conquering sin. And I love this. And he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus took our sin in his flesh and then killed it. It's gone. No more sin and death. Now you have spirit and life. Whew. Raise your hand if you think maybe you don't always grasp that 24 hours a day. Okay, good. good. So, it's, so it's appropriate, I think, to be explicit about what the gospel is because we miss it. I miss it. If we look at the last part of this section, we'll, we'll jump to the last two verses of this section in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and, and, and 14. Paul says the exact same thing in different words. Listen to what he says. He says, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. I love that word transferred. It's like a bank account, right? You transfer money from one account to the other. And Paul is saying, God has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin and death, and he's transferred us into this new kingdom of his beloved son, Christ Jesus. So no longer are we in darkness, now we're with Jesus. In whom we have redemption, and that's a big word, and it just basically can be boiled down to the word rescue. We've been rescued for the forgiveness of sins. So if I could paint it to you like this, it's good news about a battle won, right? And so the good and mighty prince has rushed into the evil dark empire. He's slain the dragon and he has rescued you out of that evil empire and he's transferred you to his home and now you're in a good empire. That's good stuff. That's the gospel. But what about the rules? What about all those verses that tell me I do need to do better? Can I just say this? that if you preach the gospel clearly, that question will always follow. If I stand here and say, you do nothing, and even if you do something, it's filthy rags. He did it all, and you get heaven for free. Immediately, your next response is, does that mean I don't have to do anything? Yes. That means you don't have to do anything. In fact, if you do something, it's filthy rags. You get it based on not your merit, but on his merit. That sounds like you know, free, cheap, whatever, grace. 
It's interesting, Paul in, in Romans, he, he is preaching the gospel. For eight whole chapters, he's preaching the gospel until he gets into other stuff that's really will you know, blow your mind away in chapter 9 and 11 and all. But, but, but before he gets there, he's preaching the gospel. And as he's preaching it, he always has to ask this hypothetical question. He asks four hypothetical questions because he knows if he's preaching it clearly, those questions come. And those questions sound like this. Well, then I should go on sinning, Right? If I get all this for free, then I should go on sinning. Paul goes on and on and on with all these run-on sentences. And then he asks another, uh, another hypothetical question. Well, if grace abounds when I sin, then the more I sin, the more grace abounds, so I'm going to sin more. And he goes on and on with a bunch of run-on sentences. And he keeps asking these hypothetical questions because he knows if you're tracking with me, if you're understanding the gospel, then your thought in the back of your head should be, does that mean I don't have to do anything? That's an explicit, clear gospel. Someone who asks that question is on the outside looking in, not on the inside looking out. Because here's why. If you were in slavery, in this this dominion of darkness, of sin and death, and the good prince rides in on his white horse, slays the dragon that's been enslaving you, and picks you up and takes you to the the castle of, 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 of the dominion of the, of the beloved son where you're no longer enslaved by the evil one and the darkness, but you're now free with spirit and life, you would never say, oh, does that mean I can go over there now? You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't say, hey, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna play over here because thanks for that, but there's some stuff over here I like. You wouldn't do that. So you wouldn't ask that question. If you're on the inside over here, you say, no, I'm not going to go back over there. But can I be honest with you? I do. I don't know why I do, but I crawl back over there all the time. And I I think Paul even said it better than I could ever say. He says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I do want to do. I'm always over there. But can I remind you, there is now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I live in this kingdom, and I may play around in that kingdom, and it's stupid. I don't do it because I get to. I do it because I'm in bondage to it. No condemnation for that bondage. I'm a new creation. I'm a new person, but I still sin. And I hope that you'll forgive me for that, because I think that you do too, because I know some of you. I've been keeping a record. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) I just said that because I forgot where I was going next. Oh, okay. So so at this point, I want to say this. That's the gospel. And and I, I really believe that we have to untwist that and untangle that from what we thought was the gospel, which is I need to do better and try harder, be gooder. Because that's not the gospel. The gospel is I have faith in Jesus And so, and even though I want to go back over to the darkness, I have to not try harder not to. I'm so torn. I want to do this. I have to say, wait a minute. I really do believe that Jesus has my best interest at heart. But I don't. I I don't. Sometimes I think he doesn't. You know what I'm saying? And I want to go over here. When when Jesus commands me to to, to not lust, for instance, uh, yeah, but it's only one time. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 I've got a plan for you and your wife and your marriage, and you're ruining it if you run over there. You can run over there if you want. I've already paid for that sin too, but I want you here where you can have joy, where you can have power, where you can have a spirit of life. You run over there, you're just ruining it. Let me tell you what that does to me, because here's the way I operate. You tell me I can't go over there, where am I going to go? Well, I'm going to go right about here. <laughs> My sons do that too. <laughs> but if you tell me that there's no condemnation if I go over there, why would you go over there? I got all this over here for you. You've piqued my interest a little bit. So the difference between religion and gospel is religion says, don't do it because it's bad. Gospel says, this is so much better. You want this. And I tell you, I need to hear the gospel every day 
And I need it modeled for me every day because I'm horrible at this. I'm beginning to learn that, that I don't do this when it comes to parenting. I, I don't parent my kids through the lens of the gospel. I parent my kids the way my dad parented me, which is I use fear to get them to do what I want them to do, right? Boy, you go over there, I'm gonna whoop the tar out of you. Sometimes you do need to whoop, you know what I mean? But, but, but you do need to, you know what I mean? If he goes into the street, I'm gonna whoop him, right? I want him to know, you better fear me. But he's gonna, be, he's gonna be bigger than me one of these days, especially the little one. He's gonna be the biggest, I think. And so I can't always use fear to get him not to go over there. I don't want my kids to grow up in a household where they do what's right because they don't wanna disappoint old dad. Or worse, they do what's right because they don't wanna disappoint God. That's religion. And God doesn't want that from us. That would be like me getting married and say, okay, you know, 10 years later, honey, you know, I said I'd be with you forever and I'm gonna, because I made a promise. My wife doesn't want that. She wants me to love her and and embrace her and give her all that she needs, not I'm gonna do what I'm supposed to do because it's the right thing to do. And God doesn't want that either. So I don't want my kids to not make bad choices for fear. I want to teach them, and I'm still learning how to do this. Instead of saying, boy, you do that, I want to whoop a tar out of you. I'm trying to say now, son, why would you lie? What is lying going to do for you? Why not lie? Well, I'll tell you why. Because God is truth. And God made us a promise that he sent his son to die for our sins. And so if he breaks his promise, then we're all in big, serious trouble. So you better not break any promises or I'm going to whoop you. You know what I mean? We, we got to learn how to begin to see everything through this lens of the gospel, which I'll be honest with you, I think it's, it's, it's twisted in my mind. Because I too often want to say, well, I didn't do it right. I'm not good enough. I need to try harder. Instead of saying, wait a minute, there's no condemnation. I'm not going to walk in that anymore. I'm going to walk in this over here now. That's where, I, that's where I'm meant to be. He loves me. Sometimes I feel like he doesn't love me. That's a lie. Sometimes I feel like he disapproves of me. He may be in some way disappointed in my choices, but he loves me and he doesn't disapprove of me. The name of the game for religion is behavioral modification. And as parents, we use it on our kids. And as pastors, I think we've used it on the church. The name of the game for the gospel is grace, forgiveness, joy, and power. And I've not heard a lot of that. Can I get an amen when it comes to the gospel? I've heard a lot of, you better do better. You better try harder. You better be gooder. Because you suck. You're depraved. You need more Jesus and you're messing up your life because you don't have more Jesus. I've got like a thousand illustrations that I want to give. Like, honestly, great ones. Movies, songs, magazine clippings. I want to give all these illustrations to really bring it home. And I thought, you're not going to have time to give all those illustrations. But I'm just going to give one. But can I tell you this? Because we're a gospel-centered church, I'm going to make a promise to you. Every sermon that I preach is going to be through the lens of the gospel. You're not going to hear try harder and do better. You're going to hear Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Let's walk in the victory that we have in Jesus. The good news is the battle's been won, and you don't have to live in fear anymore. That's, That's what I want to preach here. And I also want us as a community to begin to talk together and to wrestle together. How do we train our kids through the lens of the gospel and not fear and control? How do we love our wives and our spouses through the lens of the gospel? For instance, when I do weddings, I never do a wedding on 1 Corinthians 13 called the love chapter. I always do a wedding on Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul says, husbands love your wives and wives loves your husbands because Christ loves the church. And then he goes into this whole thing about Christ dying for his bride so that he could present her spotless and blameless. And he says, and a man loves a woman and they become one flesh. And then he says, but I'm not talking about women and men. I'm talking about Jesus and the gospel. So the gospel is everywhere. And yet we've turned it into a list of do's and a list of don'ts and a bunch of guilt and a bunch of shame and a bunch of non-victorious Christians who are underneath the guilt and their shame. Can I get an amen for that? Have you ever heard of the play or the book or maybe the film Les Miserables? 
which I like to call less miserables. <laughs> less miserables actually literally means the miserable ones. It's a 19th century novel that was called the best novel of its time. In fact, I did find out this week that it's being remade and being presented at Christmas. I think Arnold Schwarzenegger's in it or something like that. Actually, I'm just kidding. Anne Hathaway, even worse, right? I don't know. How's that? What's that going to be like? Well, Less Miserables has got... I'm just going to show you this clip, and then I'll explain it to you real quick. Uh, the backstory, if you don't know, he was in prison for 19 years in a quarry of hard labor, and he was released on parole, and no one would let him stay at their house. No one would give him food, and he was on a long journey. And this bishop said, come on in. I'll, I'll feed you. You can eat with us. And he eats with them, and they have this conversation. And later on that night, you saw he stole the silverware. And instead of whenever they caught him, he says, you give me my silverware back, and you go back to prison. He gave him this offer of grace and forgiveness and you can see it in his eyes. You know the rest of the movie or book or play, I should say. His life has been transformed from that moment on because of the power of grace. He never understood why did this man show me kindness and grace when I didn't deserve it. I mean, he's a big guy who worked in a quarry and he just decked an old bishop, you know? And that bishop gave him grace. And the rest of the story is Jean Valjean, or have you say his name? Jean Valjean, thank you. He, he, um, he becomes this perfect Christ-like figure where he's feeding the poor and he's taking care of the needy and he, and he lives this life of integrity and honor. And it's, it's not, the, the, the prison didn't, make, didn't reform him. The bishop who gave him forgiveness reformed him instantaneously. That's the way it is with you and me. We can walk on the earth all we want and we want our way and we want it now. But then whenever we're in a place where we feel that shame and we feel that guilt and someone says, I'll let you go. Me, they were like, well, I don't deserve that. And it changes us immediately. The rest of the, the story is pretty intricate. There's another man, uh, tell me with his name, Javet. Is that how you say it? The police officer? Javert. See, I'm not very good with French or Spanish. But Javert is this, this he, he represents the, 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 the type A police officer who obeys by the law. Even this, the littlest law, you lied, you're fired, you know? And, and, and he lives his life by this law, and he's pursuing Jean Valjean the whole time and ruining both of their lives. And at the end of it, they're fighting, and, and Jean Valjean has the police officer in his hand, and he could kill him, but he gives him the same grace, the same forgiveness, and says, you can go. And it shakes the police officer. Why did he do that? I would have killed him. Why did he not kill me? And at the end of the movie, he says, I have to hand it to you. <laughs> you changed my life when you did that, but I can't live that way. I'm so used to obeying all the rules. I don't understand what this gray stuff, and he throws himself in the river and kills himself. He can't handle the truth. That's the power of the gospel. It's not that you need to do better. It's that he paid for all your sin. He did better. And the good news is, is that it gets transferred to you and you get to live this new life. Wow. That will change you. Rules will not. I've seen big, hairy, motorcycle-driving men fall on their face crying at the cross. What does that? You need to be better, and you know you're wicked. That doesn't do it. They say, I'm not as wicked as you. What brings them to their knees and brings them to their face in tears is they realize, I don't deserve this grace. I don't deserve this forgiveness. And that gospel gets inside of you and it begins to change you to live a different life. Amen. As we close with a few more songs of worship, I wanted to just give you one more illustration. If I could, you might be wondering, why are these leaves on my table? There's no trees in here. Why are they falling on my table? And, and again, I just want to share this with you because this is probably, aside from Kelly, the only reason why I live in Missouri. Um, we have the best fall ever, I think. And, and, and raise your hand if you're with me and you're blown away by the fall colors. Yeah, I'm just blown away by it. Um, can I just tell you that these leaves are a picture of the gospel? I don't know if you've thought about that, but I want to put that in your mind now so that you will think about it over the next six weeks. Do you know how a leaf goes from green to bright, fiery red like this? Or, or we have this tree in our yard, and it's not even fully red yet, but when it's red, it is so on fire, you know? 
And then we have another tree right next to it that's yellow. And when the green leaves it, it turns bright yellow. And my wife says it just looks like a bonfire out in our, in our, in our front yard. And there's so many beautiful colors. And the way that these things change colors is pretty fascinating. All trees are green. All, all leaves are green. You know that. But that color's always inside the tree, the leaf. The, the yellow's always in there. The brown's always in there. It's just that there's this stuff called chlorophyll, which comes from the Greek word. I'm just kidding. And in and, 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 and Greek, actually, chlory, Chloe actually means life in green. It's, 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 a, it's a, a fabulous name. Um, I would, if I ever had a daughter, I might name her that. Um, but it's, it's, it's the green's always there. But then when um, the days start to get shorter, that's when fall comes. So the trees know, hey, the days are getting shorter. I guess it's time for us to... To, to, to hunker down and, and, and so they take all this food and nutrients from the leaf and it goes into the tree to kind of hibernate and then we see the live colors of the leaf and then it sucks all the green out of it for hibernation mode and then the leaves fall and they die and Jesus said as a grain of wheat must die so the son of man must die so that I can rise again and bring new life so these leaves they die just as Christ died and then winter comes and when winter comes it puts a blanket of frost and snow and just buries all of that death and those leaves are in the the grave and all the flowers and all the trees are just in the grave and I don't know about you, but Missouri has some long winters. Like I never, I mean, like when I was dating Kelly, there were a couple of beautiful flurries. And I thought, oh, I like winter because I was from Texas. I hardly ever saw snow. But then I moved here and it's like six months of ice and salt over everything, you know? It's death. It's death. But then here's the cool thing. And then if you're like me, I just can't wait for the longest day to come, the spring equinox, where, where this life starts to burst out of the, the ground. And we have these tulips in our front yard and, and they'll burst out even if there's snow. You know what I mean? They'll burst out right through the snow and you'll see pink and yellow and green. It's like everything's been brown and, and white for so long. And now I see colors and I want you to know that God has placed the gospel. I believe in everything. And even in the leaves and even in the seasons, we have a living illustration all around us that things will die and they must die in order for new life to spring up again. And Jesus died and he was buried under a blanket of death and he resurrected on the longest day of the year. I believe he really was resurrected on Easter Sunday. Or new life. Why, why would God, the creator of all the universe, have us celebrate Easter any other day but the day that he resurrected on Easter, on, on spring, we're new life. Because he resurrected to give us new life. And we're going to see that picture in Colossians. But because the leaves are already starting to change, because we've been talking about the gospel tonight, I wanted to take you or, or send you home with this illustration that you'll see every day and remember that Jesus died for you in space-time history so that you can have new life today.